My guest today doesn't need much of an introduction. Between 2010 and 2012, he was instrumental in exposing fraudulent Chinese companies listed in the US, a period of his career which he is most proud of. His firm, Muddy Waters, has since exposed dodgy companies, dubious accounting, and downright fraud in many countries, including the US, France, and Britain. On its website, it describes its business as the work Wall Street won't do. In times of great market murkiness, as there is no doubt we are in right now, few people are as qualified to provide clarity as Carson Block. So, Carson, welcome to the IC Interviews, and thanks for joining me. I have to say, I'm very excited to be speaking to you today, especially considering the challenges facing investors, both in terms of recovery from coronavirus and and investing in China at the moment. But before we talk about what's happening to the markets at the moment, would you mind just taking us back? I suppose it's not quite to the beginning, but near enough, and tell us the set of circumstances which led you to setting up Muddy Waters. <laughs> well, unfortunately, there's no good way to nutshell it, but I grew up in the markets. My father was an equity analyst. So when I was young, but still old enough to understand I was not going to be a professional athlete, I decided I would go into investing and um, had a few experiences you know, in China in uh, 98 and then working in a large iBank back in the States. And then I was working with my father in equity research. And this is the 99 through 2002 period. And we were just, we were covering US-centric microcap companies, but we were getting lied to routinely by the managements. One of the companies was adjudicated to be a fraud. The, you know, there were a handful of others that could have been, I, suspo- uh, I suppose, uh, adjudicated uh, to be frauds if they'd been investigated. But um, it was a very embittering time because at the same time that that was happening, the largest companies in the world were blowing up in their own fraud, fraud scandals like Enron and WorldCom, et cetera. So um, I, I really wanted to understand how to better protect myself um, as an investor. So I went to law school thinking I would just grab a few tools from law school and go right back into investing, but um, really enjoyed law school and decided that if I practiced for a little while, I'd be a better investor. Went to China with Jones Day, a large U.S. law firm, practiced there for a little bit, and then set up the first self-storage company in mainland China. So I was just trying to keep that afloat after a couple of years when my father got really interested in uh, these U.S.-listed China uh, microcaps, and he asked me to take a look at one. The company was called Orient Paper. And I, when I looked at Orient Paper, I... I'd never seen anything like this before. It was a basically a total fraud. It had just reported $103 million in revenue uh, for 2009. And the real revenue was probably two to three million US. Didn't know what to do with that. My father wasn't interested in shorting it. So just as a side project, I put together an expose report, you know, not really knowing why I'm doing this, but June 28th of 2010, so just over uh, 10 years to the day, sent it out to the ether, sent it out to like 50 people in the markets I last spoken with uh, nine, 10 years before, and report went viral, uh, stock collapsed, and I learned that this was a widespread issue with Chinese companies. So 
the next year and a half was just a sprint to expose more and more Chinese uh, or China-based frauds listed in the U.S. And then after sprinting for a year and a half and the biz- my business just going parabolic uh, in terms of its trajectory, I really thought about what the issues were that enabled these complete zeros to list in the U.S. and Canada. And it's the same conflicts of interest and gaps in the system and ineptitude and laziness that really were at the heart of what I went through um, or the dis- that were at the heart of the disappointments I suffered in the first leg of my career um, when I was a long-oriented investor. So with that, I realized, hey, anywhere there are capital markets, there are going to be people doing things they shouldn't do. So if there's liquidity in stock borrow, let's do this globally. And so I've been doing it globally ever since. It really is extraordinary looking at the origins of the story. At what stage do you think, if your dad hadn't been interested in Orient Paper, at what stage do you think the extent of the fraud would have been revealed? Whew, yeah, that's that's a really... I don't know if I've ever been asked that question. Um, I, I just can't say. Um, there had been a few attempts to expose... Uh, U.S. listed China frauds prior to our Orient paper report, but they weren't successful uh, attempts. But that said, what I came to find out shortly after publishing on ONP is that there had been a lot lot of uh, smart money hedge funds that had been in the space and had been identifying frauds. I mean, there you know, wasn't a secret among smart money hedge funds that these things were frauds and that it was systemic. It's just the the question was, well, what's going to break them? And as we went through this, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny because we, so we really had the first successful China stock fraud short with Orient Paper. But the stocks kind of hung in. And then a few months later, we shorted Rhino International, which I think the CEO of Rhino, a few days after our report, inadvertently confessed to his auditor uh, that he was committing fraud and not realizing that the auditor, you know, wasn't going to form, you know, like be a co-conspirator here. So um, Rhino was promptly delisted. But even then, these companies had market cap. You know, you'd think that, I, I mean, I, I moved back to the States just as I published on Rhino International. And so this was um, moved back in early November. So about a month later, I was at a holiday party and I was just in, in uh, Marin County and I was just being introduced around as somebody who owns a self-storage company in China because I wanted to be low profile. I ended up talking to this guy who's, who's an engineer. So you assume he's kind of bright. And, um, you know, he asked me, he said, well, you know, hey, do you ever look at any of these, these stocks of uh, Chinese companies? And I said, well, you know, sort of, uh, you know, I'm, yeah, I, I published some stuff on him, you know, kind of on the short side. He's like, wait, are you are you that Muddy Waters guy? And it's like, oh, yeah, you, you know who I am? He's like, yeah, that's crazy. So we have this conversation, and he asks me about a company we were looking at called China Media Express, CCME. And so that was to be our next report. And so I knew this thing's already a zero. I mean, it's, it's a zero of zeros. Uh, it's a completely fake business. And... I, but I, I can't tell the guy like, you know, that we're working on this. So I just, you know, I just try to hint. I just say, listen, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of smart people in the space and nobody has ever had anything good to say about that company. I would watch out. 
So, you know, then later he asks me, oh, what do you think an individual investor like I can do to protect myself? You know, I can't even read a balance sheet. And I'm thinking, I don't know, man, <laughs> you know, you're you're an engineer. And if you're if you're not willing to learn how to read a balance sheet, I'm like, I'm not really sure that you should be, you know, putting your money in the market. But anyway, I didn't say that I, I demurred. But in any event, a few weeks later, we published CCME. The guy emails me. <laughs> He's like is your report for real? Because I'm thinking of going all in here on the long side. And, you know, it's just like, wow, you know, here's, here's a guy who he knew who I was. I told him, I warned him away Mm -hmm. and he's still thinking of taking the other side. Mm -hmm. So how long would it have taken? But for our Orient paper report, I really don't know. It's just, it's, it's kind of amazing to me, the, way the resilience of individual investors optimism (laughs) about some of these companies i suppose that comes back to like you have to be pretty optimistic you have to have a sense of optimism in general to be investing long in companies and i suppose this then comes back to like my next sort of round of questions about is it down to the individual and i mean with the china situation in particular there was I mean, a lot of the issue was around Chinese culture and how, how the companies were able to list in the US. And, and I mean, one of the things that was extraordinary for me it was the fact that it isn't illegal to steal from foreigners in China. But then the second part of it is potentially the regulation. Do individual investors, do they deserve to be protected by the SEC in America, the FCA in the UK? Or should it come down? Is it there? Is it an individual's responsibility, whether they're a retail investor, whether they're stock picking themselves or whether they're investing just via their pension fund? Who, who's responsible for, for making sure these companies don't end up defrauding individuals? That's, that's a key point, because a lot of people misunderstand how the market is structured from that perspective. So, first of all, regulators. Regulators are not there as a prophylaxis against fraudulent listings. Okay, they're not there to protect investors on the front end. There are disclosure standards. And so when a company files to go public, the conversation, especially if I think about this from the perspective of the SEC in the US and an issuer, the conversation is around the adequacy of disclosures. And the SEC is not sitting there trying to figure out whether it's a fraud. They're not capable of doing that. Um, now, the theory behind regulation, though, is that the markets are clean because uh, the SEC or the FCA enforces against some bad actors from time to time. So the idea is, you know, by showing that you will get caught and there are consequences and it's not worth it, then that's supposed to keep uh, wrongdoers out of the market. Now, the problem became, especially with the China to U.S. listings, is that there was really nothing the SEC could do because the U.S. and China, their court systems do not recognize each other's judgments. Okay, and, and here's why. China does not have a real court system. All right, you want to win a court case in China, then you need to find a lawyer who's going to have a better chance at bribing the judge than the other guy's lawyer does. Um, you know, just a little sidebar, but the thing about China is everybody is willing to bribe public officials. It's not, you know, are you willing to bribe a public official? It's this game that everybody has to play where the bribe is paid, but you got to, you know, everybody has to cover it up because if it ever sees the light of day, then then you have problems. So 
the judge is going to sit there and take a bribe based on which lawyer he trusts not to screw the bribe up the most um, or trust the most not to screw it up. So that's kind of how you win a court case there. So look, let's not consider recognizing judgments from China. But China naturally is not then going to recognize a judgment from the U.S. court system. So here's the thing. The SEC can get all of the awards it wants against um, somebody from China. But if that person remains in China and as far as the SEC can tell, his assets are in China, then, well, you know, what, what's what's the penalty? So when the SEC spent all of these resources investigating these cases, and you have to think about the resources involved here. I mean, just the translation of documents from Chinese into English takes a lot of time and money for the SEC. And then they're sitting on all these documents they don't understand because it's a different legal system and the government is structured differently. So then they need to bring in people who can help them interpret that. Very resource intensive. So they, they expend all those resources and then Chairman Wong is sitting in the middle of China somewhere laughing and, you know, like saying, hey, you know, maybe I'll pay you three dollars. And, you know, the SEC is no, 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 you know, pay us, you know, 50 million. And they'll eventually agree to one million dollars, which is, you know, a fraction of what the chairman stole. And that's the reason the SEC agreed to it is because that's what they can get away with. So or that's all they can get out of it. You know, then people misunderstand auditors. Auditors are not there looking for fraud. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying this facetiously. This is literal, okay? An auditor's role is to ensure that the correct accounting standards are applied and that they're applied correctly. But if we're talking about fraud carried out by top management, right, then because management prepares the financial statements, auditors don't come in, you know, EY doesn't come in and prepare their financials. They're only, you know, they're prepared by management. They're handed to EY. And EY is going to have very junior auditors who are just looking at paperwork to say, okay, well, you know, uh, do we have the invoices that support this? Okay, yeah, we have the invoices. So to commit a major stock fraud, you just need to be good at forging paper, forging documents, you know, like, yeah, here's the here's the sales contract and you know, here's the, you know, here's the invoice that you know, shows we shipped, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's how you get through an audit, basically. The, the only anti-fraud device um, that most audits employ is a cash balance confirmation. But, you know, you don't, it, when you look at an audit report, you don't know how this cash balance confirmation was done. I mean, did the auditor just do it once at the very end of the year and, and get a bank statement? Or did they go periodically throughout the year did they uh, deposit de minimis amounts into the company's account to check that those would appear on the statements when they get printed out by the bank to ensure that these are genuine statements? And there, there's a range of ways that auditors can do cash, con cash balance confirmations, and there are no standards. So when you look at EY with Wirecard, I mean, EY was accepting screenshots, you know, of the purported uh, bank statements rather than dealing uh, directly with the bank. So see how that turns out yeah i mean the fallout from wirecard uh, and how long it's going to last is certainly going to be interesting to follow but obviously we started that little, little thing talking about china but actually could regulators and and could auditors have more of a role beyond china where i mean in a country like germany where things should be easier to understand they should be all right for the auditors and regulators to get their head around do they need to 
be doing a better job at cleaning up the markets? Well, there are a few things that I think, so if we're talking about Germany in particular, I mean, Boffin has just been atrocious, um, not just in Wirecard, but every single public critic of a public company in recent years has been put under criminal investigation in Germany, literally. And that includes that includes me uh, for Stroer in 2016. By the way, that investigation is not closed. It just, you know, hangs there. So that, you know, so and that, and that all starts with Boffin. So Boffin's whole thing was to protect the wrongdoers by attacking the critics for them. So I, I look at Boffin as uh, Wirecard's most powerful accomplice imaginable. Um, so, so Germany has that issue to begin with. Now, in terms of auditors, um, I think one of the problems here is that the public doesn't understand what auditors do. So auditors run these television ads during golf tournaments and all over the world, and they market themselves to investors as this brand that's global brand that's reliable and trustworthy. But legally, these audit firms are set up as actual just as networks of different legal entities in various countries. Now, when there's no problem, people are seconded throughout and they move freely and money gets remitted to the global partnerships. But the moment there's an audit failure, they point the finger at the local affiliate and say, oh, no, 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 that that's that's not EY, you know, global. No, 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 that's just EY Germany. You know, you can't. Uh, we're not going to be liable for that. So, so long as partners globally don't really have that much money on the line, there's no disincentive. There's no real disincentive here for auditors to issue unqualified opinions on problematic companies. Um, that's number one. Now, number two, um, the audit standards exculpate them from liability, professional standards, exculpate them from liability in most of these situations because they're under, they're supposed to assume that management's telling the truth, that the accounts are genuine, that the documents they've been given are genuine. So as long as there's nothing glaring, and look, at least in the U.S. legal context, EY's failure to get actual bank statements might give rise to liability. I mean, an auditor has to be really, really negligent um, in order to be professionally liable uh, generally. So, um, but, you know, and it's it's hard for them to be that negligent, to be honest, and, and be held liable. So that's another problem there. So from an anti-fraud perspective, I think an audit opinion actually gives a false sense of security. And investors probably be better protected against fraud without audits, or at least there's I, I'm I'm 50-50 on that. Now, what do auditors do and what do they really do and what's twisted about it? I mentioned that they're supposed to ensure the correct standards are applied and applied correctly. But this is where you get to this realm of what um, Jim Chanos calls, and I am totally on board with, legal fraud. So you have, when you're, when you're talking about, say, UK or US or European-based issuers, they can massively manipulate their financial statements without actually crossing the line legally and committing fraud. And, you know, an example is uh, back in 2015, we shorted a French uh, hypermarket company, Casino Guichard Parachon. And so we found that they were that they were significantly boosting their EBITDA through these complex transactions 
with companies that you know we think they effectively controlled but from an accounting perspective they, within the accounting rules they were able to deconsolidate so they basically had a ready buyer of assets to buy at a premium and then casino would book the gains on the sales and this is all funded by debt um, and casinos under an obligation to lease these assets back in most cases so that's to me you know that's likely legal um, I mean, the reality is it's a gray area, but the auditor blessed it. Uh, that's Deloitte in that case. They blessed it. And so if you're an enforcement authority, you would have a really hard time making a case against Casino because the auditor blessed it and Casino is going to have plausible deniability. But that goes to me to the, the heart of the, I guess, more day in, day out dysfunction of auditors, and that is they're really there to help management. So, okay, management, what do you want to do here? All right, you've got too much debt. So what do you need to do? You need to, you need to show lower leverage ratio. Great. Um, well, let's, let's look at this from two perspectives. You've got the debt side and then you've got the balance and you've got the EBITDA side. So, okay, on the debt side, let's see what we can do. Let's effectively see if we can swap on balance sheet debt into off balance sheet debt by doing these sales and leasebacks. So you can classify these as operating leases instead of finance leases. Okay, so we just effectively got rid of some debt there. Um, EBITDA, great. Book the gains on sales as operating income. And just, just when anybody asks you well, how much of this goes in operating income, just you know tell them to take a hike. So that's basically how I see a lot of auditors working hand in glove to enrich managements in the short term while investors are basically left in this fog of opaque thing and could be holding the bag um, over the medium to long term. Mm, yeah, and I suppose that is something that investors don't necessarily realize. The auditors aren't necessarily on the side of the investors. They, they work for the companies. Yeah. So then it could arguably come back to a company like Muddy Waters. How important are Muddy Waters and other short activists in, in cleaning up the markets? <laughs> well, I'm not going to I'm not going to take the bait and ego trip here. Um, look, I, I we we were at the forefront, um, you know, my firm and then short activists as a, as a whole. We were at the forefront of cleaning up the U.S. exchanges um, with respect to the Chinese uh, frauds back in period from 2010 to 2012. So by 2012, I, the, the word that I repeatedly heard when it came to China was uninvestable um, from in, institutional investors. And I and I feel like that's generally the right perspective. I mean, the public equities, I don't think public equities are a good way to try to play China for various reasons. Do you still think that? Yeah, I still think that. I think public equities are, you know, are, I mean, look, the public public equities can go up. I mean, you know, why do stocks go up? Because there are more buyers than sellers. But in terms of whether there's the economic substance to these companies that the financial statements imply, um, I think there's zero assurance of that when it comes to China public equities and the various other issues. So the way that I would see investing in China is the really hard way where it's private equity type investment. It's a lot of oversight. It's exercising some level of control. Um, and, and again, it's, it's hard, um, 
and there's a lot of competition right now to make those investments. So, you know, that that train probably left the station um, at least a decade ago, to be honest. But um, in any event, the um, yeah, I, I, I felt like I felt very proud between 2012 and 2014. But then when Alibaba filed its S1, and this is a company where just in 2011, Jack Ma had literally stolen Ali, the Alipay subsidiary uh, from the company, uh, which was partly owned by Yahoo and, and also uh, SoftBank. And a few months later, they happened to find out, Yahoo and SoftBank happened to find out that it had just been taken without any notification by Jack Ma. He made up some excuse about, oh, you know, foreign ownership was prohibited. So I just thought I'd steal this from you guys. And he said, all right, so here's what I'll pay you for it. You know, and they, they obviously had no leverage um, in that situation. So Jack Ma is not, you know, was never here to make friends, okay, or to be friends with outside investors. So he's going public or he's taking his company public in 2014. And everybody lined up around the block for that IPO. And that was kind of a just a very that was a very disappointing moment in my career because I thought we had made a difference. And there were so many criticisms of their of uh, Alibaba's F1, its prospectus, um, just accounts and disclosure that just were problematic in so much opacity. And yet they had no problem raising the money. And it was back to the races uh, in terms of China companies coming to the U.S. to list. And so I guess, you know, if you'd ask me, if I, if I were answering this question in 2012, 2013, I would tell you that we're just, you know, fantastic force for good. Today, I think we're among the best equipped, if not the best equipped, to root out wrongdoing. But, um, you know, in a world in which wrongdoers are seemingly more and more seldom punished, um, yeah, you have to kind of look around and say, well, I don't know, like what societal, you know, is this doing the societal good it should be doing? Um, now, that said, I'm more positive about the UK. I mean, I feel like the FCA, I know that it's kind of a sport to beat up on the FCA publicly, but I mean, from what I've seen, the FCA relative to a lot of other regulators globally, um, you know, has its act together with respect to abusive companies. Uh, and it wasn't just the, the FCA here, but I mean, NMC was erased within just a few months. Um, so I, I feel like the FCA takes the stuff pretty seriously. But um, I mean, certainly if you contrast the FCA to Boffin, I mean, you know, Boffin's in kindergarten and the FCA is, you know, in, in university here. So um uh, but yeah, it, the, the less punishment there is, then uh, ultimately, yeah, the less efficacious activist short sellers are going to be in terms of improving the overall market dynamics. Mm, yeah, that's, a, that's a really interesting point. But uh, just while we're on, on the UK, what is it about the UK that makes it attractive to you at the moment? Obviously, you've had a couple of big successes in the last, I mean, almost going, going back a year now to Burford Capital, but um, I mean, I hear you're still on the hunt for, for more UK short positions. Sure. Um, well, for one thing, um, I, you know, the, the cultural connection to, uh, between America and the UK, I think actually matters here because the UK operates under the same legal framework um, when it comes to securities as France and Germany do. Um, 
France uh, and particularly Germany have shown that they do not place a high value on public discourse and debate with respect to these companies. Um, whereas the UK, even though the legal framework is different from the US, and it, but the UK culturally, I think, believes this is a good thing um, and that there should be that there, it should be an environment in which um, we can make these criticisms. Now, the flip side of that is the UK does have pretty onerous um, defamation laws. And that's why, you know, U.S. actors and actresses are always suing tabloid, U.S. tabloids in U.K. court. But, um, you know, that putting that to the side and that that's not fortunately, the U.S. has a federal law that effectively makes people like me or makes Americans judgment proof. From uh, def- um, from UK courts when it comes to defamation judgments. Is that a wor- is that a concern for you when you're putting these together? Defamation. You often concerned that that's what you're going to be accused of. Well, we, I mean, look, the companies, depending on what you know, what our report is. So, if we're in the legal fraud realm, you know, companies will. I mean, companies aren't necessarily going to say it's defamatory, although they often do. But certainly, when we're accusing a company of fraud, they you know, always say that it's defamatory. Um, no, I'm not really, I'm, I'm not really, look, we, we have to write these things regardless of jurisdiction in a way where the facts are accurate and the conclusions are reasonable and they're well supported. So we've been doing this so long, we have a stringent process. So I'm not concerned. I'm not concerned about that, but Look, even, you know, if we were ever sued in the UK for defamation, we would show up and defend it. Um, I think there are other there are other activist short sellers who um, take the view that because they're effectively judgment proofed by U.S. law, um, it's not worth fighting. But for us, we'll we'll fight it out. I mean, that's a reflection of us having more resources. But it's just my view that I, I do not want to hand a strategic victory to any of these guys. How do you pick your targets, like Burford and, and M- NMC? I mean, there's, you know, we now, you know, we, we manage um, investor funds. So there's really a certain minimum um, liquidity that we need in order to consider. And I mean, that's just the reality of our business. It's very time consuming on the research side, what we do. It's, it's expensive. Um, we have to anticipate significant legal costs on the back end. I mean, that's going to be, you know, one out of every X companies will sue. Um, so it has to be a certain minimum size. Now, you know, putting putting the minimum liquid, well, really minimum liquidity, putting that to the side. Um, sometimes, you know, it just has to do with what's most intellectually interesting. Um, you know, there have been periods earlier on, I mean, when we would do these Chinese frauds and look, if you... If you like shorting frauds, which we do, China is the gift that doesn't stop giving. I'm fond of saying that China is to stock fraud as Silicon Valley is to technology. But sometimes it just gets boring. You know, it's like, okay, you know, another chairman with his buddies setting up fake companies here. And eh, we've seen this thing, you know, 6,000 times before. So sometimes just intellectually, we want to do company A because it's new and interesting and you know, company B is just more of the same. Um, but yeah, so, you know, in the case, I mean, in the case of Burford, um, I mean, Burford was one that I was really interested in because when we first started 
poking around at it. I mean, it had all the warning signs, you know, massive fair value gains from level three accounts and a CFO married to the CEO and it's, you know, the founder slash CEO and it wouldn't answer any questions. And it's an esoteric asset class and earnings were just fantastically reliable in how they grew, but they're non-cash. And, you know, we're just looking at it and thinking, no, there's, there's got to be a lot beneath the surface here. And guess what? There was. So, um, you know, I, so I, I, so Burford, so Burford, I think just piqued my interest for those reasons. Also, I used to be a lawyer, so um, I'm no stranger to litigation either. So this notion that, you know, they could reliably model the outcomes, I mean, <laughs> it just struck me as absurd. Yeah. So, um, Anyway, so, so I, I think that's why Burford was really interesting to us. And then when I sent out a tweet the day before a Burford report saying that we were going to come out with a new report the next morning, London time, I didn't even say London listed, but it was obviously implied. Burford dove almost 20% on that tweet, which stunned me. Um, but NMC also dove quite a bit. So when I when we looked at what happened with Burford, I thought the analogy that I came up with was this was a train and it was heading over the cliff and there were a bunch of people on the train and they knew the final destination was off the cliff, but they were getting served drinks and having a great time. And the whole game name of the game was you know, just stay on the train and party as long as possible, but try to jump off just before the cliff. And so when it went down about 20% thinking, all right, yeah, that's people feeling like, Maybe the cliff is coming up. Brilliant analogy. I really like that. (laughs) I think that is, it's true, isn't it? I mean, everyone said, I knew it was coming. And yet the share price kept on climbing. And I mean, I suppose that does that. I think, I mean, for me, obviously living in the UK, Burford is such a clear example about why someone like Muddy Waters is so important to the markets because everyone knew it, but no one could prove it. So, yeah, those people would have continued to enjoy the train ride forever, knowing that it was all eventually going to come undone, but they just didn't know when. And... Right. But, you know, I'm, I'm really uh, I'm really glad to hear you to hear you bring that perspective in that. Yeah, everybody knew it, but, you know, just, you know, nobody nobody wanted to get off the train for no reason. And that that really goes to me to the earlier question you were asking about how I evaluate the role of short sellers and um, or activist short sellers. And it goes to that frustration because we should not be in an environment from an investing perspective in which the, you know, in which that's the game, you know, which is, Oh, I know this is a dodgy company, but you know, until it's proven that I'm going to be long this thing. I mean, that, that when that's a prevailing attitude and it's not only Burford, I mean, clearly, but when that is a prevailing attitude, the markets are not functioning as they should be. They are not allocating capital efficiently. They're allocating capital based on BS, basically. Um, and that's, yeah, that that's markets at this point, and, you know, especially post all the stimulus uh, related to the coronavirus, I mean, are really not fulfilling their economic functions, you know, that the reason to have them there is not to keep us entertained while we're working from home and we don't want to actually be, you know, answering emails. It's, it's to allocate capital efficiently within the economy. Um, and unfortunately that's distorted now. Mm. And Burford shows that. Yeah. And 
I mean, the UK, I mean, I know, as you say, it's happening globally now, post, post-pandemic with all this capital flowing around. But yeah, it's clearly been an issue in the UK for a very long time and people not really knowing where else to put their money. So just seeking these companies, which don't even, I mean, at least in the US, you've got some fast growing companies. We haven't really even got that in the UK. So, I mean, what next for investors? How, how does this get resolved? So I'm not sure that the U.S. really has that many fast growing companies. I mean, there's tech, obviously, but that's an oligopoly. But see, that's the thing, right? When when we post global financial crisis, we did enter this slow growth period. And one of the outcomes of that was all this money then began flowing to China because it's like, oh, well, you know, China's you know growing at eight percent. Yes, but the numbers aren't real. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's growing quickly. So we need to put money there. We're growing slowly. And so with with large companies, though, especially these large caps, you, so what, what happened in the asset management industry post-financial crisis is so much capital got concentrated in so few hands, you know, especially in hedge fund world. You know, huge divide between the haves and haves and have-nots in hedge fund world. And that, a lot of that has to do with Madoff and no, no allocator wants to lose their job because, you know, they allocated to the wrong guys. So, you know, that's when, you know, Tiger Global and, and Third Point, I mean, these are guys who just were able to get huge asset flows. So now you have a lot of money in the hands of small number of institutional investors. So they're focusing on large caps. And well, and we're in this slow growth paradigm, right? Post GFC. I mean, the period between 2000 and 2008 was a lot of fake growth effectively. So you know, 2008 onward, they need large, they need to invest in large liquid companies and they want growth. So you're going to get valiance. You're going to get a lot of these companies where, um, you know, where like Newell, uh, you know, like Newell brands as well. I mean, these companies where you can't really grow them that quickly. So you just have to financially engineer the statements to make it seem like you're growing. And if you're top management, your goal is to clip, you know, at least three, but hopefully five years of stock grants and options, cash out. And, you know, then if the company blows up down the road, who cares? You've made, you know, 50, 100, whatever million dollars. So, um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, to the extent that the U.S. has appeared to be faster growth in its companies, I mean, outside of outside of tech, it's just, I guess, better financial engineering, probably, or more audacious financial engineering. So we can't, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but can't count on the US. We mean, I mean, the UK is, uh, I don't know what comes next for the UK. And China, I mean, you've, I'm pretty sure I can guess the answer, but you wouldn't touch a Chinese company long right now, I assume. I mean, I haven't, the, the few companies that we've come across over the years where we thought they were real, um, or the financials were real for Chinese companies, they were not exciting companies. They were not fast growth companies. And that that's the reality of doing business in China. While maybe the economy is growing quickly, and again, we can talk about whether the numbers are real or not, or well, not, to what extent they're not real. But the problem, the inherent problem in China is that it's the most cutthroat business environment on the planet. And, you know, capital, access to capital has not been a problem in that market since in the early 2000s. So the moment a company is doing really well, then competition just floods into the market, 
driving down margins and you have to compete against all of these guys who have you know what i used to call when i lived in and did business in china six month business plans like they don't care about the long term they're going to make as much money in the near term as possible by commoditizing your product or your service so it's a very very difficult business environment and plus a lot of times i mean it's it's extremely political but not in a functional political sense it's again can you form a relationship with government officials you know and if you form the right ones and you know this is one of my concerns about the myth I mean, I, I suspect that in the early days, there were certain government people who went around and just said, okay, you, you give this business up. Here's all you get. And if you don't say yes, then here's what we can do. We can call the tax bureau in, we can audit you, and we're going to find all kinds of reasons to throw you in prison. So do you want $5 for your business or do you want to go to prison? And so that that's the sort of thing that routinely happens in China business is you get government thugs to align with you and put down your competition or interfere with that with your competition. So, again, how do you how do you really have a sustainable, high growth business in that environment? It's very, very, very difficult. So. The companies that we thought were real were the ones that looked pretty human and pretty boring. Um, but at least, you know, we can make an investment decision based on the numbers rather than, you know, based on fake information. So that's the positive. But there, there have been relatively few of those companies we've come across uh, over the years from China. Just briefly before I let you go, and thank you for taking up so much of your time. But I just want to ask you about risk. Just, I mean mainly because of your cap, but uh, how do you feel about risk? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a, uh, that's an open-ended question. Um, <laughs> it is. Almost like a Rorsarch test <laughs> there. Um, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, we're, we're in an environment with rewardless risk um, on the credit side. I mean, that's actually, I think, Jim Grant's term. And I think he first used that in 2002, and it's only gotten uh, more devoid of reward and riskier. But no, I, I think that we're, we're stuck in this cycle in, in the U.S., but I, I think the West in general, where it's what I started terming the powder keg economy. And um, let, let's start with, okay, what's going on in the U.S.? Um, the protests uh, following George Floyd's death. The way I the way I've been terming that is, look, this isn't about George Floyd, because, you know, I mean, sickly, we've for years been watching videos of unarmed black men shot um, when they clearly pose no threat to police officers. You know, why does George Floyd's death cause this reaction? You know, because it's the 10,000th one that we've seen. Probably not. I think that inequality in the U.S. has been the powder keg. COVID the accelerant, and George Floyd was just the spark. So that's one powder keg that's basically a byproduct of the powder keg economy. And what I mean by the powder keg economy was loose monetary policies um, got, us the, got us the internet stock bubble. That crashed. Okay, so then what did we do? Well, then, we, then our central banks loosened monetary policy even more, inflated real estate, to, uh, values to give this feeling of faux prosperity and guess what you know so that's really fragile that cracked so what did they do they went to even looser monetary policies 
inflating financial assets, encouraging, and that, and that was the verbiage early on in uh, post-GFC, was we need to encourage risk-taking. But they never came off the gas. So you had these emergency monetary policies for 10 years that encouraged all kinds of value destruction. I mean, balance sheets became brittle because of stock buybacks. PE just levering up and hollowing out these companies and leaving them as you know husks. So all of these balance sheets were themselves powder kegs, just too much debt, not enough equity, not enough assets. And, you know, oh, well, who would have known that COVID was coming? You know that things are going to happen. That's the problem. And, you know, like my six-year-old could probably have told, you know, Jerome Powell that. But in any event, um, so along came COVID and everything started to crack and crumble. This, you know, the powder keg was detonating. So what do we do? Stuff more powder in there, and you know, and and it's just more of the same. And uh, you know, we're not, you know, we're not going to come off these policies at any time in the next decade. That's just nobody has the political will to do that at any point in time. So um, I mean, the Fed started doing that in late eighteen and completely lost its nerve um, because the markets were going down. And then when that gets back to that powder keg of inequality, because, you know, this the analogy to me is that, you know, in the U.S. especially, where we are completely inept in our response to coronavirus, you know, Rome is burning and the markets are going up. It's like Nero is fiddling. And for how long will the 90 percent of society that doesn't have financial assets you know, probably 95% of society that doesn't have meaningful financial assets. Like how long will they sit still for this dichotomy? Um, I'm not saying it's going to be revolution, but politically, I mean, it's, I think the future is going to be worse than the recent past as a result of this. So um, yeah, I, you know, anyway, that's, that's kind of what, what I see as being the, you know, this, the issues that we've had with this low growth paradigm and just not wanting to really build a strong economic foundation, just financializing everything repeatedly. So is there a way for individual investors to navigate that sensibly? Well, <laughs> the smart ones, I guess, have just been going long everything. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I hate giving that advice because, you know, maybe, maybe I'm somebody who knows too much, you know, in that I, I just, I feel like it's, I guess here, here's the thing that really bothers me about this situation, because I was getting excited back in March about the possibility of going long things um, and, and maybe starting a line of business where we were going to be doing some longs um, because things started to get to the point. They started to approach value. Um, but, you know, now I, I'm when I think about it, I'm really mad about this because here here's my choice. Right. Because um, I, I don't really have any long assets aside from you know a little bit of real estate. Um, I could jump in and join this, but that's not I'm not making a bet on any individual comp on any individual company. Really, I'm making a bet that this extreme monetary policy doesn't fail. And there are a lot of people out there who say, look, never bet against the Fed. You know, it's not going to fail. But I don't know how to analyze that because nobody really understands this. We repeatedly find ourselves in these uncharted waters. And if you're having to make a bet on something you don't understand, like that this will work or this will not work, again, markets are not 
this is not how markets are supposed to function. Okay, we're supposed to look at company financials. We're supposed to make decisions about the companies, but the companies are basically irrelevant. I think at this point in time, when you have an economy where demands demand has been eviscerated, I think it's going to be a long time away from recovering. But you know, financial assets are going up, and you've got this you know fear of missing out. You're not betting on companies. You're betting on on, on further on the further success of financialization of the economy and markets. And it just, I mean, I don't want to have to make that bet. That's to me, it's like throwing a dart. Mm-hmm. So for you, you're staying short. I mean, we're, we're staying active as short, you know, it's if, if we just sat back and shorted things without going public, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I would have been the most interesting guy you never met after 2011, <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, we, we, you know, we stick to activist short selling, which is not a scalable strategy, but it actually has worked okay in these markets. Absolutely. Well, Carson Block, thank you very much. It's been really great to talk to you. All right. Thank you.